It's our privilege this morning again to open the scripture, and we'll begin where we began a week ago in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. We were doing uh, a little series this summer that I'm continuing to get more and more uh, encouraged by in my own personal life. I trust it will bear fruit for you likewise. We're considering the lives of the 12. Uh, some would prefer the word disciple. Some choose the word apostle. Jesus used both. So we mean by that those men that Jesus called to be his followers. And it is our intention to even consider Judas, the one who betrays him, in this series. But we'll spend the entire summer considering these men, and we will work through uh, the list as they are recorded in the Scripture. We mentioned a week ago there are four lists in the Bible, three in the Gospels, one in the book of Acts. In every one of those lists, Peter is first. In fact, in every one of those lists, the first four men and their names never change. They're always Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Today we consider Andrew, not because he's the second that's normally listed, because he is not, but rather because he is Peter's brother, as we shall see. So we want to read again this text that will remind us of the relationship between Andrew and the Lord Jesus, as well as Andrew and his brother Peter. Let's begin in verse 35, John chapter 1. The next day again, John, meaning John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which would be 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we want to ask the question that we'll begin with each Sunday as we consider these men. Simply, who was this man? Who was Andrew? Let me just mention a, several things, and then we will allow the Scripture to teach us the applications. He's always listed, as I mentioned, among the first four. It's always Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So no matter what list you look at, those four men are always first. And in fact, as we shall see, they are often alone with Jesus, those four, and Jesus does some more specific teaching related to those four men at times. But among those four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Andrew is the most obscure. We know less about Andrew than we know of any of the other three in this first grouping. The reason for that is not explicit in Scripture, but it is implicit. Uh, obviously, when you're in the room with three alpha males, 
somebody doesn't get to talk as much, right? So Peter is clearly uh, the leader. We said that a week ago. He is the man uh, amongst the disciples. James and John, who we'll consider in coming weeks, are nicknamed by Jesus the sons of thunder. Does that sound like a guy who stands in the corner and doesn't say much? No, it doesn't. So there's Peter, James, and John. Peter, the leader, James and John, the sons of thunder. And then there's Andrew. Somebody has got to take notes. <laughs> Somebody's got to say, what did we just obligate ourselves to? Somebody's got to say, what's next? Somebody's got to say, who's going for lunch? Etc. Somebody's got to do all that because these other guys are not necessarily the personality types. It can be assumed, and let me emphasize, it is assumed. Nowhere does the Bible say that Andrew is somehow subservient to Peter. It doesn't say Peter is the most important brother and Andrew is the lesser brother. The Bible does not say that, so I want to be careful that we say what the Bible says and we say nothing else. But it can be assumed that, that Peter is, because he is, the, if you will, the, the more out front, if you will, the ostentatious one, that Andrew is the one who supports his brother, the one who encourages his brother. We shall see that momentarily. We know from the scripture that he is a native of the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Now, you, you would wonder, well, where is that? And the answer is, they're looking for it. Yes, they are. They're still looking for Bethsaida. But the, but the best research, or if you will, the best archaeology, suggests that is at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I know many of you have, have been to Israel or you pay a lot of attention to uh, the geography of Israel. Uh, I would invite you to consider going with us. We've got a trip going to Israel next spring. I would invite you to come and go with us. But the Sea of Galilee in the north is, is actually kind of a reverse teardrop shape. We might call it heart-shaped, but it's, it's not even that. Uh, I would call it football-shaped, but it's a bloated football, and it's kind of knobby on the top side. But, so I'm going with a, a reverse teardrop. So the Jordan River comes in at the top, and the Jordan River escapes at the bottom. So if you use a clock face, Capernaum, which is the place where Jesus lives... He has moved his uh, livelihood to Capernaum. Uh, is at about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on that clock face. Bethsaida is actually a, across the lake about at 1 o'clock. So again, thinking that you have to get there either by land or by boat. And these men are fishermen, so their preferred way is boat. And so he is from Bethsaida. But now he's a resident of Capernaum. That matters because Capernaum is much larger. Bethsaida is a very small place, very small village, uh, has uh, less to offer as far as commerce and so forth. These men are commercial fishermen, and they need a place where they can sell their fish and so forth, and Capernaum was that place. It just so happens that Capernaum happens to be the place where Jesus lives. So you have these men who will one day be a part of the twelve, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they are all fishermen, and they all live in the town that Jesus lives in. That is not unimportant. Neither is that a coincidence. It is assumed that 
Andrew and Peter are longtime friends of James and John. They know each other well. Uh, They walk, as it were, in tandem. They hang out together. They work together. They're often found fishing together. Uh, They're selling their goods together and so forth. So these four men uh, encourage one another. Two sets of brothers, Andrew being Peter's brother. But the thing we note in this passage, John chapter 1, is that Andrew is the first of the disciples called to Jesus. You notice again these circumstances, verse 35. The next day John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Now one of these is going to be identified as Andrew. The other one is unnamed. Now because this is the gospel of John you would know that oftentimes John begins a tradition of referring to himself in the third person. He never names himself until the end. He always refers to himself in some sort of vagary. Typically, he would use the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We'll get to John in due time in this series, and we'll repeat that. But I want you to know, this is the gospel of John, and it is apparent that John the Baptist has a disciple named John, the son of Zebedee, nicknamed the sons of thunder by the Lord Jesus when he moves to become one of his 12. But the man who is named here is Andrew. So verse 37, the two disciples heard him and say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, saw them, said to them, what are you seeking? And uh, they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. And they came. And one of the two, verse 40, who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we know that Andrew is the first of the disciples, first of the 12 to be called to Jesus. He is the first one Jesus looks to and calls to follow him. You'll note that he goes and reaches out to his brother, and he invites him to join. We'll say more about that momentarily. So we don't know a whole lot about Andrew. It is suggested uh, by those who count such things that Andrew's name only occurs nine times in the New Testament. Nine times. uh, That leaves out the four times he's named in the, the listing of the disciples. So only nine times is Andrew named apart from those lists. So we don't know a lot about him. As I mentioned, he's the most obscure of the first four of these 12, but he's an important disciple, as we shall see. So I want to just make a couple of applications of, or if you will, observations about Andrew, and then try to make application for our lives. I would suggest we would do well to copy or emulate this man. I want you to note, first of all, and we get this clearly from John chapter 1, as well as other passages, that he is eager to invite others to follow Jesus. He is eager to invite others to follow Jesus. You see it plainly here in verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. So how does that, that Simon is introduced to Jesus? That occurs because Andrew initiates that. Andrew goes and finds his brother, and he invites him to come and meet the one that he believes is the Messiah. He is eager to invite others, and that starts with his own family. 
I would suggest we would all do well to consider our own responsibility. Are we inviting our own family, not, not just those who live at home, but perhaps even in some measure those who live extended distances, are we inviting them to consider their own relationship to Christ? If you've seen the Messiah, does your family know that you've seen the Messiah, that you're fond of the Messiah, that you love the Messiah, that you follow the Messiah? It can be said of Andrew that his family did, and he goes and gets Peter immediately. There's another passage, John chapter 6, that is significant in this uh, understanding. Look at verse 8, John chapter 6. You'll remember the context here. Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. It's a great miracle. They're looking around, and they have uh, no food. They have no resources. They have too many people. They have uh, a, a strong need for a miracle. We need a miracle if we're going to feed all of these people. And the disciples were convinced that no miracle was happening. And yet, the Scripture says, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Isn't it interesting that the other 11 have uh, been doing their own research of the crowd, their own scanning of those who have food or don't have preparation for food, and they come up empty-handed. But Andrew is the guy. He's the one who finds the boy and brings the boy to Jesus, the boy with the loaves and fishes. So the miracle could not have happened without the boy, and the boy would not have been known if it had not been for Andrew. I will remind you that this is the way the Lord works. We simply do the things that seem to be necessary, and God takes them and births something. God takes our efforts, our lives, our gifts, our conversations, our little thing, and makes it a big thing. Think of the fact that the loaves and fishes is the most prominent miracle in the Gospels. It's, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, which is not true of, of most of Jesus' miracles. But all four Gospel writers include this story. In other words, it's not a minor thing. It's not an insignificant thing. They're all impressed with it. You would be too. If today somebody walked in with a lunch, one lunch, and just fed us, which we're a little, little shy of 5,000 here, but God does this miracle, and everybody recognizes it seemingly as a miracle. Certainly these men do. He does that because Andrew does a very simple thing, which is customary, it seems, for Andrew. Here's a boy who needs to be brought to Christ, and I will bring him there. So he does so in John chapter 6. You'll notice a, another example of this in John chapter 20. Pardon me, John chapter 12 and verse 20. John chapter 12. You'll remember that in John 13, so we're literally on the brink. John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he celebrates the Lord's Supper for the first time. So John chapter 12 is the end 
of the public record that John gives to the ministry of Christ. Jesus is days, maybe hours, away from death in John chapter 12. And I want you to note what's going on here. So you have the triumphal entry in verse 12, and uh, his disciples don't understand it and so forth, but it's the Passover. Jesus is there, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, Passover, were some Greeks. Greeks. Now don't, miss, don't just skip over that. If you read the King James, that's the word Gentile. A Greek is a Gentile. The word Gentile means nations. Remember, the Jews see the world in the Bible times as just the Jews and everybody else. So that's Jews and the nations. And the word for nation is Gentile. You're a Gentile, meaning you're not a Jew. You could, you could be from Spain. You can be from United States. Oh, by the way, there was no United States. You, you can be from somewhere that we can't even pronounce. You speak a language that we don't, don't understand. doesn't matter. All we know is you're not one of us. You're a Gentile. So in this case, they're specific Gentiles. They're Greeks. So among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. We'll cover Philip in our fifth uh, examination. Philip went and told Andrew. Now, you would have to ask the question, why does Philip tell Andrew? Why doesn't Philip just go and tell Jesus? Well, again, the Bible doesn't give explicit reasons for that, but perhaps it is because Andrew is the one who is typically inviting people to meet Jesus. He's sort of got that reputation. He's kind of the doorway or doorkeeper to Jesus. So, verse 22, John 12 Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now I would ask the question, to whom did Jesus speak those words? He would say, well, he spoke those words to his disciples. Well, perhaps, perhaps two of them were there. We know Philip and Andrew because they brought the Greeks. But this is in the paragraph or the context of these Greeks coming to Jesus. And what message, what teaching do these Greeks hear from Jesus? Well, here it is, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, etc. Now, why would the Greeks need to hear that? Because Jesus is the Savior of the Greeks, the Gentiles. He's the Savior of me. And I'm certainly not Jewish. To my knowledge, none of you are Jewish. It doesn't matter, Jewish or non-Jewish. He is nonetheless the only Savior. And how would these Greeks have heard this message that whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life? They would have not heard that message had it not been for Andrew. Andrew made it possible for those men, perhaps women as well, to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So we know this about Andrew, that he was eager to invite others to meet and follow Jesus. We would have to, have to ask ourselves then, are we of similar, cut from similar cloth? Are we like Andrew? We know that Peter has a certain personality. Well, apparently Andrew has a certain personality. And that personality is welcoming. It's hospitable. He makes relationships well. And he invites those relationships to walk the path that he has walked. A walk toward the Savior. He invites these to hear from Jesus and to know Jesus. I would suggest to you that there are many ways to evaluate whether or not a person is mature in Christ. You may today say, my self-identification is that I am a mature Christian. Or you may be an old Christian. I certainly am an old Christian. But the question of mature has to be measured entirely differently. I want to suggest to you that a mature Christian has many traits that we could point to. He is slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. A mature Christian walks in the fruit of the Spirit. A mature Christian loves, and his countenance is fueled by joy. He's at peace with God, he's at peace with his fellow man. A mature Christian is not argumentative, it's not flying off the handle. A mature Christian, there are many ways to define a mature Christian. We've only scratched the surface. Well, let me give you one more on the basis of Andrew's life. A mature Christian is someone who wants his relationships to know Jesus. You want your people to know the Savior. And you do what you can to introduce your people to the Savior. Now, admittedly, we don't have Jesus in human form. But we nonetheless have Jesus. We have Jesus in the Word of God. We have Jesus amongst the people of God. We have Jesus in our own lives, in the witness and testimony of our own lives. And whatever's necessary, I want to suggest to you that an application of Andrew's life for our own lives is God help me to be more like Andrew to be willing to go and reach my people and bring them to Jesus, to introduce them to the one who has changed my life and can change theirs. If you believe that whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, if you believe that, then it necessitates that you be like Andrew. And you bring the Greeks, the people outside of the purview of the gospel, to hear the one who possesses the words of life. How shall they hear 
If you don't tell them, they won't. They won't. They will live their entire lives and die in their sins without knowing the gospel, without knowing the truth, without ever meeting the Messiah. Andrew is eager to invite others to meet and follow Jesus. Lord, help us to be like him. But there's a second thing that I want you to see. It's also very important. When you go back to John chapter 1, I want you to notice the description that John uses of the conversation between Andrew and his brother Peter. You'll note it there at the end of the paragraph. One of the two, verse 40, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Now, if you've, if you've read a lot of the scripture, you kind of read over that and you don't stop and take inventory of what's really going on there. But I would ask you the question, when's the last time you had a conversation with anybody? And you use that phrase. I would suggest to you that's not a common phrase. That's not normally the way people talk. Doesn't mean we're bad. Doesn't mean we're wrong. But I will tell you, that's not normally the way people talk. Come. I don't want to talk to you. Really, what are we going to talk about? I have found the Messiah. Really? Who's that? Better yet, what's that? What do you mean by that? Well, a little vocabulary lesson here, if you would, in verse 41. There's a parenthetical statement, which means Christ. Messiah means Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word and, or a title, Hebrew title. Christ is a Greek word. So the New Testament is written in Greek, written for a wide audience beyond just the narrow band of Hebrews. Remember, there aren't many Jews in the world compared to the Greeks. There are exponentially more Greeks. The Bible is written in Greek, the New Testament. So he translates this Hebrew title, Messiah, and uses the Greek equivalent, which is Christ. They mean the exact same thing. They mean anointed one. Anointed one. Now, who is the anointed one? Well, that's, the, that's a term that grows out of the Old Testament. It is a term used to describe several relationships. We will not belabor the earthly ones, but it is the typical term, usual term, that's used to refer to the anointed one. And it grows out of the, the backdrop of the entire, if you will, tapestry of the Old Testament. Now, let me give you an illustration of common thinking about Messiah and try to, try to do it this way. If I were to ask you, what are the characteristics of, uh, of any category of person? Let's say a leading politician. What are the categories of a leading politician? And again, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, not trying to be pejorative in any way. just want to suggest to you that we could line up 10 people and they would all come up with different characteristics of what constitutes a prominent or leading or effective politician. So president, vice president, uh, big, big, big wig somewhere. 
we'd all have different perspectives. Okay? What makes a good uh, baseball player? Well, we could line up 10 people, and they would say, well, somebody that bats well, somebody that throws well, somebody that fields well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point is, isn't it, that there is no consensus amongst sports junkies these days. There's this ongoing conversation that, frankly, just wears me out. They always want to talk about who's the GOAT. That's a term they use in sports talk. GOAT stands for greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, GOAT. Who's the GOAT? A lot of conversation about that. We talk about the greatest quarterback or the greatest receiver, the greatest baseball this or the greatest soccer that or whatever, whatever. Who's the GOAT? Who's the GOAT? It's a, frankly, it's a nauseating conversation because it's just opinions. Everybody knows that Babe Ruth is the greatest of all time. <laughs> all right, so that being said, it's, it's a conversation where you line up a bunch of people and you get just so many, so many answers. Now, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. How many perspectives are there on what we should expect of the Messiah? Well, there's at least 39. And then, of course, there's the rabbi. Now, let's assume for the sake of conversation that I could be called a rabbi. By the way, I'm not interested in that title. If you give me that, I'm going to ignore you and pretend I didn't hear you. All right, but okay, so there's a rabbi here. There's a rabbi over there at that church. There's a rabbi over there at that church. There's a rabbi over there at that church. There are these Bible teachers. And we could all read John chapter 1, and guess what? I'm going to go this direction, and they're going to go that direction, and they're going to go that direction. All three are true, are they not? If they're preaching the Bible, they're all three true, but they're going to make different emphases. You say, what difference does that make? Well, that's what you have when you try to understand what is the Messiah. Well, who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? What are, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the one who is forecast, prophesied, who is coming to put an end to all these shenanigans. Now, the best illustration of this in our day is the Antichrist. Right? So today, the Antichrist is not as popular a subject as it used to be. Do you remember when Mikhail Gorbachev was president of Russia, right? Russia was our dreaded enemy, and so many Americans thought, well, he's the Antichrist. How do you know? He's got this birthmark. It's the mark of the beast. Turns out he wasn't. All of you owe an apology to Gorbachev for thinking he's the Antichrist. He might not have shared your politics, but he wasn't the Antichrist, not the Antichrist that you're talking about. And so you can line up 10 people, 100 people, a million people, and you're going to get just as many perspectives on who or what is anything, including the Antichrist and including the Messiah. So what are we to think about the Messiah here? Well, we're to think of what the Bible thinks about it. So let me just give you three Old Testament references that will help you. Two of them are on what I've called the Mount Rushmore of important Old Testament texts. 2 Samuel 7, turn there for just a moment. Or if you don't, we'll, uh, we'll put it on the screen. I won't wait for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. David wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, don't want you to do that. And the reason is, is because I'm going to build you a house. But he doesn't mean brick and mortar. 
doesn't mean with stone. He's going to build you a house. He's going to build you a lineage. Notice what he says, verse 7. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God said, have I been complaining about not having a house? No, not one time. Now, therefore, thus you shall say, speaking to the prophet Nathan, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Every Jewish child who goes to rabbinic school is taught that David's ancestor will be the Messiah. God is going to raise up a king, and that king is going to do all these things. He's going to be judge over the people Israel. He will give us rest from all of our enemies. Now, what is the first century world that's, that Andrew is living in? It is a world that's dominated by the Romans. These are Jewish people. They are fiercely independent. They don't like soldiers of another country garrisoned in their town any more than you would. They want a Messiah who's going to put the Romans in the road. One of the disciples we'll meet later, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot actually a political party among the Jews who not only wanted the Romans gone, they were actively working to get them gone as insurrectionists and terrorists. So Andrew's perspective on the Messiah would have been shaped by 2 Samuel 7. He's going to deliver us from our enemies. He's going to judge over the house of Israel. He's going to be wise. He's going to be all that 2 Samuel prophesied. There's another passage, Psalm 110. All of you know this is my favorite psalm. Love this psalm. Talk about it for hours. In fact, I have talked about it for hours. Some of you still eyes glossed over from my talking about Melchizedek. We don't talk about Melchizedek today, but I want you to see Psalm 110 because this is messianic. Everybody in the Old Testament knows this is messianic. This is more popular than Psalm 23. In fact, Psalm 23 is never quoted in the New Testament. Never. Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Which means if you don't know Psalm 110, you cannot understand fully the New Testament. You can't understand what's going on with Andrew. We have found the Messiah. Really? Who are you talking about? We're talking about this guy in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put an end to all of these shenanigans on earth. That's messianic. There's going to be a Christ. He's going to come, and we want to see him coming. Isaiah comments. This is the last of these. Isaiah comments in verse 6, chapter 9. These words, for to us a child is born. You'll notice there's a child mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. There's a child mentioned in Psalm 110. And here there is a child mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, where have we heard about the throne of David before? 2 Samuel 7. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. He was looking for the Messiah. Andrew goes and gets his brother and he says, we have found the Messiah. I want to suggest to you that we absolutely gloss over that. We just think that's just another throwaway comment that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) But dear friend, it means something to someone who's living under oppression. Government oppression, certainly, in Andrew's life. And that may or may not be your perspective on your life today. But to some degree, there is an even greater oppression that all of us must contend with. And we're all contending with it right now. And that is the oppression of sin. The oppression of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We live in a broken world. And we ourselves are broken. And I want to tell you, in due time, you may become so broken, I hope, that you decide the only fix and the only solution is Messiah. I got to have some help. I got to have an answer. I got to have some hope. I need life. I need strength. I need wisdom. I need power. And I want to ask you, what earthly institution is going to provide that for you? Do you think the government's going to come in on a white horse and somehow save the day that's going to solve the sin problem in our lives? No, friend. Do you think there's some kind of economic buoyancy that's going to come? We all like it when the tide rises and we all get a little money. 
Hallelujah. Nobody's raining on that parade. But I want to remind you that it doesn't matter how many coins you have in your pocket. It doesn't matter what you think or they think is the solution of this world. Ultimately, this world cannot solve the deepest oppression of man's heart, which is his own sinfulness. You need a Messiah. The point is, Andrew is looking for a Messiah. Now, he may be a bit misguided. He may be thinking some sort of military solution, which many people today look to politics, look to government, and they say the government is the fix, the government is the solution. Maybe Andrew's guilty of that. Certainly, we can draw some inferences from other experiences of the disciples that we shall see as we move our way through these 12. We shall see that they did not understand who Jesus was. They had a concept of Messiah, but Jesus is retraining, recalibrating their understanding. And I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus has come in order that he might become Lord of our lives. Andrew knows that he needs a Savior. He needs someone bigger than the Romans. He needs someone bigger than those who are out of step with God, unrighteousness. He needs someone bigger even than his own unrighteousness. How does he contend with his own sinfulness when you go to sleep at night? And there's no voice except your voice, your own conscience. Does your conscience accuse you? Does your conscience rebuke you? Or have you grown cold to your conscience? I'll tell you, if you're cold to your conscience, that's why you're cold in life. The only people who are walking in true joy are those who have found a clear conscience. Those who are walking with integrity before their God and before their fellow man. You say, well, I'll I'll never answer to the government. I'll never answer to any other earthly power. I'll always be, okay, that's good. But you'll answer to your conscience because you don't have any way of getting around it. You don't have any way of getting away from it. And right now, there are people in this room whose consciences are busy, busy, busy accusing them. You need a Messiah. You need one who can forgive you. You need one who can restore you. You need one who can invite you to come and follow him and change your life. I want to remind you of something, how the New Testament pictures this Messiah. Matthew 24 verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus tells us that the Messiah is coming, not for the first time, but for the second. You'll notice how he phrases it in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, a reference to the return of the Messiah. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, keep in mind Noah, Jesus talks about Noah. 
Can, can I just chase a little bit of a rabbit here? We flushed one, so let's go chase him down, right? Watch this. You say, well, I don't believe in Noah. I don't believe there was a worldwide flood. I don't believe that. Really, why not? Well, it's not rational. It's not scientific. It's not whatever, whatever. Jesus believed it. He quotes it. You don't have to convince me how smart you are when you reject the flood. <laughs> but I don't like your chances going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. Be on the lookout. Be watchful. By the way, last week, I told the parable of the ten virgins. I remind you of the parable of the ten virgins. That's the very first paragraph of the next chapter in Matthew 25, verse 1, is the parable of the ten virgins. Five were ready, five were not. So there's a theme right here at the end of Matthew. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You must be ready. You must be looking for the Messiah. If I were to define contemporary Christianity today, I will tell you very few people have many conscious thoughts about looking for the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is not a popular, it's not a popular thought, it's not a popular thinking, it's not a popular practice, it's, it's not a popular motivation. It's, it's not what people are thinking about. It's not what people are talking about. People are talking about how to have a happy marriage and how to, you know, make their budget stretch and whether or not their kids are, you know, all stars or whatever. They get caught up in the ways of the world. To use the phrase he uses here, they are marrying and giving in marriage. You say, is there something wrong with marrying? No, <laughs> quite on the contrary. Something wrong with giving in marriage? No, I've done it three times and had some of the best happy times of my life. But life is about far more than that. And my life, your life, our lives together, this church, this church is about far more than just the next event or the next party or the next circumstance or the next anything on this earth. Listen to me. This church is about preparing ourselves for the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be like Andrew on that day. We want to say, I was looking and because I was looking I recognized him when he got here. I would ask you to consider your own relationship to Christ today. Are you looking? Are you looking for him? For the one? 
the anointed one, the chosen one? Are you looking for the son of almighty God? He has come. But he's gone away for a moment. But he's coming again. I hope you're looking. And I hope you're inviting others to join you in the watch party. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are full of grace. And today, your word is full of life. We pray, God, that we would consider the life of Andrew and consider our own lives looking for the Messiah. Lord, help us to be found faithful, to be ready, to be prepared, to get our house in order, to make sure, Father, that we are not building a kingdom on earth. We don't need a house for God. We need to be the house of God. We need to be your people doing your bidding. We pray, God, for your mercy and grace to continue to powerfully lead us, help us, and drive us to you. Oh, Lord, welcome us, we pray. As your children, we reach out to you this morning with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.